again. Um, if you miss the uh, first greeting, just want to introduce myself again. My name is Jaime Jimenez, and I am one of the pastors at, at Christ the King, and I'm glad to be with you this, this morning. Um, the text we will study today comes from the book of Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 14, and it's a short reading uh, passage. It's just one verse. And to preach from just one verse uh, could be dangerous if we don't consider the context where that verse belongs. But I will try to avoid that risk. Uh, however, it is helpful to know that this verse has to do um, not just with Habakkuk's time, but with the unfolding of all of human history. And therefore, I chose to speak uh, from it because I think it's very helpful to give us direction as we begin a new year. Some of you might be very excited as you look forward into 2022, but some of you might be tired, fearful, or depressed as you come out of 2021. But regardless of where you are, it is my prayer that this verse will help us to realign our lives and give, give, uh, give us direction and hope. So let me read the text and then I'll pray. Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you provide for every need. You feed our bodies and our souls and yet we hunger to know and love you more and more. Lord, as we meditate upon your word, I pray that your spirit will give us eyes to see. We want to see Jesus and how wonderful he is. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. You know, it must have been difficult to live by faith in Habakkuk's time. He was a prophet in the seventh century before Christ. And as a prophet, he was supposed to speak to the people of Judah the word from God. But they were not listening. The golden age of Israel's monarchy under King David was like a vague memory in their minds. Some of the kings that ruled, well not some, most of the kings that ruled after him were pretty much a disaster. One of the few exceptions was Josiah, a king who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. But when things seemed to get a little bit better, Josiah was killed by the army of Necho, king of Egypt. And a few months later, Jehoiakim became the new ruler and he proved to be another terrible king. So these were the times of Habakkuk. It was difficult to be a believer and a prophet. But to make things worse, God seemed to be absent. The prophet couldn't understand how Judah was being unfaithful to the covenant, and God didn't seem to care. Evil appeared to rule. So Habakkuk cried out, How long, O Lord, will I call for help, and you will not hear? I cry out to you, violence. Yet you do not say. But God is never indifferent to the sin of his people. God responded by saying that he was about to send the Babylonians, a brutal and merciless people, to 
to judge the people of Judah and take them into exile. And just as Adam and Eve had been expelled from the Garden of Eden many years before, now Judah was about to be expelled from the Promised Land. Habakkuk was confused by the first scenario, but the way God was going to address the situation made him even more confused. And you can read about this in the first two chapters of, of Habakkuk. It's a very short book. But <coughs> this gives us an idea of what was going on in Habakkuk's time. And in the midst of this hopelessness because of the circumstances, and in the midst of the uncertainty of what is God doing about it, the Lord called Habakkuk to live by faith and reveal to him a glorious vision. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now we live many years after the prophet Habakkuk and in many ways we live under different circumstances. But the same vision still speaks to us today and help us or can help us to live by faith. So this morning we are going to explore how this is true by answering four simple questions. Why do we need this vision? What is the vision about? How can it guide us? And where can we get it? Why do we need it? What does it mean? How can it guide us? And where can we get it? So first of all, why do we need it? Alasdair MacIntyre, uh, a Scottish-American philosopher, explains in a famous book called After Virtue that particular events can be understood only in the context of a story. Particular events can be understood only in the context of a story. And to illustrate this, he imagines himself at a bus stop when a man standing next to him suddenly says, the name of the common wild duck is Histrionicus, Histrionicus, Histrionicus. Now, there is no problem in understanding the words he said. He is talking about the Latin name of the common wild sea duck. The problem is knowing how to respond to that. Well, this depends on figuring out what is he talking about. One possibility is that this man is saying that out of madness, and perhaps that informs you how you might respond. But perhaps, McIntyre explains, he has mistaken me for somebody who yesterday approached him at the library and asked, sir, do you know, by any chance, the Latin name of the common wild sea duck? And he's bringing back the answer, so that makes perfect sense. Or maybe he just came out of a session with his psychotherapist who urged him to break down his shyness by talking to strangers. Or maybe he's a Soviet spy waiting to meet someone and the Latin name of the common wild sea duck happens to be the code sentence that will identify him to his as you can see, the meaning of the encounter with that man at a bus stop depends on the bigger story of which that event belongs. You can't know the, the true meaning of the conversation unless you know what the bigger story is. Now, this is true of human life in general. In a book called The Drama of Scripture, Craig Bartolomeo and Michael Goheen explained that in order to make sense of our lives, we depend on some story, 
the broader framework of meaning or that gives meaning to every part of our lives. As McIntyre explains, we can only answer the question, what am I supposed to do or what am I to do, if we can answer the prior question of what story do I find myself a part. Leslie Nobigan, who was a missionary to India for many years, once said, the way we understand human life depends on what conception we have of human history. What is the real story of which my life is part? That's the fundamental question. And we all have some kind of answer that frames or shapes the way we live our daily lives. It justifies what we do. It gives us purpose and direction. It helps us to navigate uncertain times. It helps us keep pushing forward. It helps us make decisions. It gives us hope. So it seems to be a very important question. And it is worth pausing and asking ourselves, what is the real story of which my life story is part? What am I anticipating at the end? And how can I discover what the bigger story is? Now, since no human being can know the future, the only way to know the bigger story that transcends our story is by divine revelation. Only God knows the end from the beginning. So that's the reason why we need the vision that Habakkuk received many years ago. Because it answers the question for us. It points us to the story in which we live our lives. Particularly, it points us to the glorious end to which God is driving history. The prophet Habakkuk needed the vision to make sense of his own life in his own particular circumstances that didn't make much sense to him. Only by knowing the glorious end will he live by faith. Now, again, Habakkuk and us live in very different times and yet we are part of the same story so our lives need to be informed and directed aligned to the same vision a few years ago um, my family and i we visited a science museum and i remember it has this dark tunnel it's a, it's a cylinder um, and that you walk through and, and and you go in uh, and walk through a metal structure but inside the tunnel, there are projecting images, and these images are spinning. And the tunnel doesn't move at all, but the images are spinning. And I, I get this very easy, very easily, uh, but I had to go through several times, of course, because of my, my kids. <coughs> now, what is amazing is how it tricks your mind, because as soon as, as you walk in, you can barely walk without stumbling. And again, the floor is not, it's not moving, it's just the images. But of course, there is a handrail that you hold to in order to make it through, through the end of the tunnel. Well, the vision that Habakkuk, that God revealed to Habakkuk is like the handrail that you hold to in order to live by faith, particularly in dark times. So that's why we need it. Now, what's the vision about? That's the second question. What's the, what's the vision about? Well, let me tell you first what the vision is not about. It is not about your glory. It is not about your legacy. It is not about you achieving financial security, 
having a successful career, career, making a name for yourself, traveling all around the world, or any other particular dream that has to do only with you and your family. It's much bigger than that. It is about the glorious end to which God is driving history. The whole Bible points in the same direction. And to get a fuller picture, we should actually look into many other parts of the scriptures. Of course, we don't have the time to do that now. So what I want to do is just highlight a few things that have to do with this particular summary or this particular description. Okay? Four things. The first thing we learn is that the vision is about the future reign of a king like David, but greater than David. Now, you might be asking, where do I see that in this verse? I'm glad that you asked. We actually learn about this king in the book of Isaiah, who also got a glimpse of the same vision. We read in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 9, For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It's basically the same vision, right? But if we were to read the whole chapter, we will realize that this glorious vision will be accomplished through a king that will come to rule with justice and restore paradise. Let me read you a few lines from Isaiah 11, how he describes this king. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. With righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist. As you can imagine, the king that will bring this vision to fulfillment is no ordinary king, it's the perfect king. Secondly, the vision is about a time when people will know the Lord. Now, remember that the idea of knowledge in the Bible normally has a relational, intimate connotation. It is not just, it is not in, just information out there. So an earth filled with the knowledge of the Lord is an earth filled with people who are related to him in an intimate way. You might remember how in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve enjoyed friendship with his creator, their creator. However, they chose to believe a false story told by the serpent, and they rebelled against God. And as a result of their disobedience, they were alienated from God and became his enemies. But in the vision that Habakkuk received, we learned that people will be reconciled to God because they will be able to say, as the author of Hebrews says, we know the Lord. We know the Lord. You can read about this in Hebrews chapter 8. It speaks about a new covenant with people reconciled to God whose sins are no longer remembered by him. So the third thing we learn is that the knowledge of the Lord is specifically about his glory. Now, again, since Adam and Eve sinned, to encounter God's glory was not an exciting thing in the Old Testament. Because of man's sinfulness, God's glory became a threat. You might remember perhaps when God appeared Mount Sinai, the people were afraid of coming near. The temple also communicated the threat of his glory. Or you might remember when the prophet Isaiah saw a vision of God's glory, and the first thing he said was, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man 
of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of unclean lips. So he feared the Lord's glory. However, from the vision that Habakkuk received, we understand that one day God's glory will be something to be enjoyed again because it is a vision of hope. And the fourth thing, we learn that his, this knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Now, of course, there is a sense in which every part of creation bears the footprint of his glory. Psalm 19 tells us that the, heaven declare, the, the heavens declare the glory of God. But I believe that the idea here is not on that general revelation of God's glory, but on the progressive expansion on the earth of the knowledge of his glory through people that are reconciled with him until one day the earth will be filled. Now, do you remember where this idea of filling the earth appears first in the Bible? It appears in the book of Genesis. When God created Adam and Eve, he told them to multiply and fill the earth with people that will worship him and that will represent him everywhere they went. But instead, what happened? They rebelled and began to fill the earth with rebels to the point where a few chapters later, we read that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was filling the earth, was great in the earth. But this vision marks the reversal of things. Instead of evil conquering, the knowledge of God's glory is conquering and that's exactly what God is doing now. The anointed king, the Christ, that will bring about this vision to reality has already come. His kingdom has already come, but it's still coming because it is still being revealed. It is gradually covering the earth through a reconciled people until one day it will cover it in full. And this is what the vision is about. Now this takes us to our third question. Our third question is, how can this vision guide our lives? When you are young, people like to ask you, what would you like to do when you grow up? And the assumption is that it's on you to decide what to be and that it's on you to make it happen. But when you see commercials about retirement and all the things you could do, the assumption is that it's on you to define what your dream is and to make it happen. But when we look at the vision that Habakkuk received, we must know that it is not on Habakkuk to define the dream, nor to make it happen. It is God himself who will make it happen. God is at work reconciling a people to himself and making all things new through the work of his son he is on a mission and he invites us to join him on that mission this is important so that we could grasp how central the vision of God's mission must be in our lives as individuals and as a church it is not something that we just decide to pick it is not a secondary thing. Christopher Wright, in a great book called The Mission of God's People, put it this way. It is, 
not so much the case that God has a mission for his church in the world as that God has a church for his mission in the world. Mission was not made for the church. The church was made for mission, God's mission. Let me read that one more time. It is not so much the case that God has a mission for his church in the world as that God has a church for his mission in the world. Mission was not made for the church. The church was made for mission, God's mission. When we look at what um, Leslie Newbegin called the, the true story of the world, the big story, we realize that we were created and rescued to participate in that greater story, in the mission of making his glory known among the nations. That's what 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 also says. Therefore, this vision should guide our lives in two key ways. On one hand, the vision that Habakkuk received is meant to bring us hope, particularly in the midst of troubled times. No matter what is going on or how bad things look like or how ruined things look like in your life, God's kingdom will conquer because Christ has conquered. His purpose for the world will conquer. And His purpose for your life will conquer, will be accomplished. So, hold on to the handrail. On the other hand, the vision should give us purpose and direction. It defines how we should live our lives in the present time. Now, this is important for us as a church. Our task is not to make the church grow. That's always a, 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 a conversation that dominates um, the evangelical church, at least in America. Our task is not to make the church grow. Our mission is not to become a mega church in the city of Houston. Our mission is very simple. is to point people to the king and his kingdom and to provide a foretaste before the world or to those around us. That's our mission. That's what we have to care about. Uh, Michael Frost, who is an Australian missiologist, once used the image of movie trailers to explain what our goal should be. He explained that when you go to a movie theater before the film begins, there is always a series of trailers or previews of the upcoming releases. And these trailers are short films that normally include some of the best scenes that you will be seeing or on, on the movie soon to be released. And the goal is that people will see them and actually come out thinking, I want to come back to see that movie. And that's a great metaphor for the church. If we do our job well, people should actually think, I want to see the world they come from. Now, I'm not talking about having the best events. Uh, if, if, if it's about events, there's a lot of other things out there to compete with. I'm talking about being a foretaste and an instrument in bringing some, some of the justice, love, peace, reconciliation of God's kingdom. And being, being a community that faithfully proclaims Jesus. And you know what? This normally works better by focusing on a few. Because we always think, oh, what is the church going to do about that? Think, think in your family, in your small community. What are you going to do about that? Because it normally works better by focusing on a few. 
that's why, that's why it's very important to understand what our mission truly is. Otherwise, we will be distracted all the time by false ideas of success in, again, modern American evangelicalism. To quote Michael Frost again, if our mission is the alerting people or alerting of people to the reign of God through Christ, our mandate is to do whatever is required in the circumstances to both demonstrate and announce that kingship. So we feed the hungry because in the world to come there will be no such thing as a starvation. We share Christ because in the world to come there will be no such thing as unbelief. So the vision revealed to Habakkuk shall guide our life by bringing us hope but also purpose and direction. And finally, the last question, where can we get that vision? For, for this vision to truly guide our lives, we need to be able to see the glory of it. Um, <clears throat> we need to be able to see the glory of being rescued and incorporated into the story of God or, or what God is doing in the world. I mean, this is something that we should be excited about. It, but, but how can this happen? Where do we get that excitement? Well, what we need to do is we need to follow the story to its central character, to Jesus. Because the real struggle in living for God's greater story is not a lack of planning or lack of skills. It is actually blindness to Jesus' glory. The truth is that we tend to find more weight on our early dreams that will never fully satisfy us. So how can we see his glory? The Gospel of John speaks a lot about Jesus' glory. Several years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, the Apostle John wrote, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, have you ever asked yourself, how did John and the other disciples saw Jesus' glory? I don't think it was a halo, you know, or a shining light around Jesus, because not everybody around Jesus saw it. I don't think he's talking about the transfiguration event either. In the Gospel of John, Jesus speaks frequently about a certain hour. For example, in John chapter 2, when the wine runs out at a wedding, Jesus says, My hour has not yet come. Or in chapter 7, when some try to arrest Jesus, we read again, his hour has not yet come. So throughout the gospel, there is this growing anticipation about the hour, the hour. And finally, the night before going to the cross, we find that the hour that Jesus had been speaking about was the hour of his death. That night, Jesus prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, that only through God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It's on that hour that Jesus fulfills his mission and brings glory to the Father. It's on that hour that his glory shines brighter because we get to see clearly the justice, love, wisdom, and power of God. And it is on that hour that Jesus is glorified in his victory. So for the Apostle John and for us, 
to see Jesus' glory is to see him particularly in his death and resurrection done on our behalf. To marvel at the fact that God the Son gave down his life to redeem us from the empty way of life that we inherited. Our hearts long for glory, but it is a glory that can only be satisfied by knowing that the Son of God, the God of the universe, loved us and gave his life for us. And the more this truth sinks into our heart, the more we will question, how can we live for something else? And the more it sinks into our hearts, the more confident we can be in troubled times. Because if he did not abandon us when we were his enemies, how much safe we should be now that we have been reconciled. Whatever we are going through, he's taking us by the hand. Our passion and our commitment is not to an agenda, it's to a person, it's to Jesus, who saved us and who has called us to follow him on his mission. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a wonderful thing to know that through the work of your Son, you are reclaiming your creation from sin and making all things new. And to know that by his death and resurrection, we are saved from condemnation, the condemnation that we deserve. And instead, we are made your children and participants of what you are doing in the world. Lord, open our eyes. Get rid of, of the blindness more and more so that we will see the beauty of your son, long for his return, and live to make his glory known among the nations. In his name we pray.